Chapter Forty Six of Olive. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Olive by Dinah Maria Crake. Chapter Forty Six. Night and day there rung in Olive's heart the last words of Harold's letter. I shall come home. Simple they were, but they seemed so strangely joyful, so full of hope. She could not tell why, but thinking of him now, her whole world seemed to change. He was coming back. With him came spring and sunshine, youth and hope. It was yet early in the year. The little crocuses peeped out, the violets purpled the banks. Now and then came soft west winds, sighing sweetness over the earth. Not a breeze passed her by, not a flower sprang in her sight, not one sunny day dawned to ripen the growing year, but Olive's heart leaped within her, for she said, He will come with the spring, he will come with the spring. How and with what mind he would come, whether he would tell her he loved her or ask her to be his wife, she counted none of these things. Her love was too unselfish, too utterly bound up in him. She only thought that she would see his face, clasp his hand and walk with him, the same as in the dear old time. Not quite, perhaps, for she was conscious that in the bond between them had come a change, a growth. How she knew not, but it had come. Sometimes she sat thinking. Would he tell her all those things which he had promised, and what could they be? And above all, would he call her, as in his letters, Olive? Written it looked most beautiful in her sight, but when spoken, it must be a music of which the world could hold no parallel. A little she strove to temper her happiness, for she was no lovesick girl but a woman, who, giving her heart, how wholly none but herself could tell, had given it in the fear of God and in all simplicity. Having known the sorrow of love, she was not ashamed to rejoice in love's joy. But she did so meekly and half-tremblingly, scarcely believing that it was such, lest it should overpower her. She set herself to all her duties, and, above all, worked sedulously at a picture which she had begun. "'It must be finished before Harold comes home,' said Harold's mother. "'I told him of it in my letters, you know.' "'Indeed, I do not remember that.' And yet for this long while you have let me see all your letters, I think. All, except one I wrote when you were ill. But never mind it, my dear, I can tell you what I said. Or perhaps Harold will, answered Mrs. Gwynne, her face brightening in its own peculiar smile of heartfelt benevolence and lurking humor. And then the brief conversation ceased. For a while longer these two loving hearts waited anxiously for Harold's coming. At last he came. It was in the sweetest month, the opening gate of the summer year, April. Mrs. Gwynne and Olive, only they two, had spent the day together at Harbury, for little Eily, a child too restless to be ruled by quiet age, was now sent away to school. Mrs. Gwynne sat in her armchair, knitting. Olive stood at the window, thinking how beautiful the garden looked, just freshened with an April shower, and how the same passing rain-cloud, melting in the west, had burst into a most gorgeous sunset. Her happiness even took a light tone of girlish romance. Looking at the thorn-tree, now covered with pale green leaves, she thought with a pleasant fancy that when it was white with blossoms Harold would be here. And her full heart, hardly conscious why, ran over with a trembling joy. Nevertheless, amidst all her own hope, she remembered tenderly her poor sister far away, and also Lyle, whom since that day he parted from her she had never seen. Thinking, how sweet it is to feel happy, she thought likewise, as those who have suffered ever must. 
heaven make all the world happy too. It was just after this silent aspiration, which of all others must bring an answering blessing down, that the long-desired one came home. His mother heard him first. Hark! There's someone in the hall. Listen, Olive. It is his voice. I know it is. He has come home. My son. My dear son, Harold. And with eager, trembling steps she hurried out. Olive stayed behind. She had no right to go and meet him as his mother did. And after one wild throb her heart sank, so faintly that she could hardly stand. His voice, his long silent voice. Hearing it, the old feeling came over her. She shuddered, even with a sort of fear. Heaven save me from myself. Heaven keep my heart at peace. Perhaps he will not suffer himself to love me, or does not wish me to love him. I have thought so sometimes. Yes, I am quite calm, quite ready to meet him now. And she felt herself growing all white and cold as she stood. The door opened, and Harold came in alone. Not one step could she advance to meet him, not one word of welcome fell from her lips, nor from his, which were pale as her own. But as he clasped her hands and held them fast, she felt him gazing down upon her, now, for the first time, beginning to read her heart. Something in that fond—ay, it was a fond look—was drawing her closer to him, something that told her she was dearer than any friend. It might have happened so. That moment might have proved the crowning moment of life which blends two hearts of man and woman into one love, making their being complete, as God meant it should be. But at the same instant Mrs. Gwynne came in. Their hands fell from one another. Harold quitted Olive's side and began talking to his mother. Olive stood by herself in the window. She felt as if her whole destiny was changing, melting from cloud to glory like the sunset she had watched an hour before. Whatever was the mystery that had kept him silent, she believed that in the secret depth of his heart Harold loved her. Once she had thought that were this knowledge true the joy would overpower her reason. Now it came with such a solemnity that all agitation ceased. Her hands were folded on her heart, her eyes looked heavenwards. Her prayer was, O oh God, if this happiness should be, make me worthy of it, worthy of him. If not, keep us both safe until the eternal meeting. Then all emotion having passed away, she went back quietly to Harold and his mother. They were sitting together on the sofa, Harold holding his mother's hand in one of his. When Olive approached, he stretched out the other, saying, "'Come to us, little Olive, come. Shall she, mother?' "'Yes,' was Mrs. Gwynne's low answer. But Olive heard it. It was the lonely heart's first welcome home. For an hour afterwards she sat by Harold's side in the gathering darkness, feeling her hand safe clasped in his. Never was there any clasp like Harold's, so firm yet soft, so gentle yet so close and warm. It filled her with a sense of rest and protection. She long tossed about in the weary world. Once or twice she moved her hand, but only to lay it again in his and feel his welcoming fingers close over it, as if to say, Mine, mine, always mine. So they sat and talked together. She and Harold and Harold's mother talked as if they were one loving household whose every interest was united. Though, nevertheless, not one word was spoken that might break the seal upon any of their hearts. "'How happy it is to come home,' said Harold. "'How blessed to feel that one has a home. 
I thought so more strongly than ever I had done before, one day, at Rome, when I was with Olive's old friend Michael Vanbrugh. "'Oh, tell me of the Vanbruhs,' cried Olive eagerly. "'Then you did see them at last, though you never said anything about it in your letters.' "'No, for it was a long story, and both our thoughts were too full. Shall I tell it now? Yet it is sad, it will pain you, Olive.' And he pressed her hand closer while he spoke. She answered, "'Still, tell me all.' And she felt that, so listening, the heaviest worldly sorrow would have fallen light. I was long before I could discover Mr. Vanbrugh, and still longer before I found out his abode. Day after day I met him, and talked with him at the Sistine, but he never spoke of his home or asked me thither. He had good reason. "'Were they so poor, then? I feared this,' said Olive compassionately. "'Yes, it was the story of a shattered hope. As I think, Vanbrugh was a man to whom fortune could never come. He must have hunted her from him all his life, with his pride, his waywardness, his fitful morose ambition. I soon read his character, for I had read another very like it once. But that is changed now, thank God," said Harold softly. Well, so it was. The painter dreamed his dream, the little sister stayed at home and starved. Starved? Oh, no, you cannot mean that! It would have been so, save for Lord Arundel's benevolence when we found them out at last. They lived in a miserable house which had but one decent room, the studio. Michael's room must always be comfortable, said Miss Meliora. I knew her at once, Olive, after all you had told me of her. The poor little woman. She almost wept to hear the sound of my English voice and to talk with me about you. She said she was very lonely among strangers, but she would get used to it in time. She was not well, too, but it would never do to give way. It might trouble Michael. She would get better in the spring. Poor Meliora! But you were very kind to her. You went to see her often. I knew you would." There was no time, Harold answered sadly. The day after this we sought out Michael Vanbrugh, in his old haunt, the Sistine Chapel. He was somewhat discomposed because his sister had not risen in time to set his pallet and get all things ready in his painting-room at home. I went thither and found her, dying." Harold paused, but Olive was too much moved to speak. He went on. So sudden was the call that she would not believe it herself. She kept saying continually that she must contrive to rise before Michael came back at night. Even when she knew she was dying she seemed to think only of him, but always in her simple, humble way. I remember how she talked, brokenly, of some drapery she had to make for his model that day asking me to get someone else to do it or the picture would be delayed. Once she wept, saying who would take care of Michael when she was gone. She would not have him sent for. He never liked to be disturbed when he was at the Sistine. Towards evening she seemed to lie eagerly listening, but he did not come home. At last she bade me give her love to Michael. She wished he had come, if only to kiss her before she died. He had not kissed her for thirty years. Once more, just when she seemed passing into a death-like sleep, she half roused herself, to beg someone would take care that Michael's tea was all ready for him against he came home. After this she never spoke again. Poor Meliora! Poor simple loving soul! And Olive melted into quiet tears. After a while she inquired in what way this blow had fallen upon Michael Vanbrugh. Strangely, indeed, said Harold. It was I who told him first of his sister's death. He received the news quite coldly, as a thing impossible to realize. He even sat down to the table, 
as if he expected her to come in and pour out his tea. But afterwards, leaving the meal untouched, he went and shut himself up in his painting-room without speaking a word, and then I quitted the house. But you saw him again? No, for I left Rome immediately. However, I had a friend who watched over him and constantly sent me news. So I learnt that after his sister's death a great change came over him. His one household stay gone, he seemed to sink down helpless as a child. He would wander about the house as though he missed something, he knew not what. His painting was neglected, he became slovenly in his dress, restless in his look. No one could say he grieved for his sister, but he missed her, as one misses the habit of a lifetime. So he gradually changed, and grew speedily to be a worn-out, miserable old man. A week since I heard that his last picture had been bought by the Cardinal F., and that Michael Vanbrugh slept eternally beneath the blue sky of Rome. "'He had his wish. He had his wish,' said Olive gently. "'And his faithful little sister had hers, for nothing ever parted them. Women are content thus to give up their lives to someone beloved. The happiness is far beyond the pain.' "'You told me so once before,' answered Harold, in a low tone. "'Do you remember? It was at the Hermitage of Braid.' He stopped, thinking she would have replied, but she was silent. Her silence seemed to grow over him like a cloud. When the lights came in, he looked the same proud, impassive Harold Gwynne as in the old time. Already his clasp had melted from Olive's hand. Before she could guess the reason why, she found him speaking, and she answering coldly indifferently. All the sweetness of that sweet hour had with it passed away. This sudden change so pained her that very soon she began to talk of returning home. Harold rose to accompany her, but he did so with the formal speech of necessary courtesy. Allow me the pleasure, Miss Rothsay. It stung her to the heart. Indeed, you need not, when you are already tired. It is still early. I had much rather go home alone. Harold sat down again at once. She prepared to depart. She shook hands with his mother, and then with himself, saying in a voice that, lest it should tremble, she made very low, quiet, and cold, how glad she was that he had come home safe. However, before she reached the garden gate, Harold followed her. "'Excuse me, but my mother is not easy for you to set off thus, and we may as well return to our old custom of walking home together, just once more.' "'What could he mean?' Olive would have asked him, but she dared not. Even yet there was a veil between their hearts. Would it ever be drawn aside? There were few words spoken on the way to Farnwood, and those few were of ordinary things. Once Olive talked of Michael Vanbrugh and his misfortunes. "'You call him unfortunate. How know you that?' said Harold quickly. "'He needed no human affection, and so on its loss suffered no pain. He had no desire save for fame.' His pride was never humbled to find himself dependent on mere love. The old painter was a great and a happy man. Great he was, but not happy. I think I had rather be the poor little sister who spent her life for him. Ay, in a foolish affection which was all in vain. Affection is never in vain. I have thought sometimes that as to give is better than to receive, they who love are happier than they who are loved. Harold was silent. He remained so until they stood at Miss Rothsay's door. Then, bidding her good-bye, he took her two hands, saying, as if inquiringly, "'Olive?' "'Yes,' she answered, trembling a little, but not much, for her dream of happiness was fading slowly away, 
and she was sinking back into her old, patient, hopeless self. That olden self alone spoke as she added, "'Is there anything you would say to me?' "'No, no, nothing. Only good night.' And he hastily walked away. An hour after, Olive closed her heavy eyes, that burned with long weeping, and lay down to sleep, thinking there was no blessing like the oblivion of night after every weary day. She lay down, little knowing what mystery of fate that quiet night was bearing in its bosom. From her first sleep she started in the vague terror of one who has been suddenly awakened. There was a great noise, knocking, crashing, a sound of mingled voices, and above all her name called. Anywhere, waking or sleeping, she would have known that voice, for it was Harold Gwynne's. At first she thought she must still be dreaming some horrible dream, but consciousness came quick, as it often does at such a time. Before the next outcry was raised she had guessed its meaning. Upon her had come that most awful waking, the waking in a house on fire. There are some women who, in moments of danger, gain an almost miraculous composure and presence of mind. Olive was one of these. Calmly she answered Harold's half-frenzied call to her from without her door. "'I am awake and safe. The fire is not in my room. Tell me, what must I do?' "'Dress quickly. There is time. Think of all you can save and come,' she heard Harold reply. His passionate cry of Olive had ceased. He was now as self-possessed as she. Her room was light as day, with the reflection of the flames that were consuming the other end of the long, straggling house. She dressed herself, her hands never trembling, her thoughts quick, vivid, and painfully minute. There came into her mind everything she would lose—her household mementos, the unfinished picture, her well-beloved books. She saw herself penniless, homeless, escaping only with life. But that life she owed to Harold Gwynne. How everything had chanced she never paused to consider. There was a sweetness, even a wild gladness, in the thought of peril from which Harold had come to save her. She heard his voice eager with anxiety. "'Miss Rothsay, hasten! The fire is gaining on us fast!' And added to his was the cry of her faithful old servant, Hannah, whom he had rescued too. He seemed to stand firm amidst the confusion and terror, ruling everyone with the very sound of his voice, that knew no fear except when it trembled with Olive's name. "'Quick, quick, I cannot rest till I have you safe. Olive, for God's sake, come! Bring with you anything you value, only come!' She had but two chief treasures, always kept near her, her mother's portrait and Harold's letters. The letters she hid in her bosom, the picture she carried in her arms. Thus laden, she quitted the burning house. It was an awful scene. The utter loneliness of the place precluded any hope of battling with the fire, but, the night being still and windless, it advanced slowly. Sometimes, mockingly, it almost seemed to die away, and then rose up again in a hurricane of flame. Olive and Harold stood on the lawn, she clinging to his hand like a child. "'Is there no hope of saving it? My pretty cottage, my dear home where my mother died!' "'Since you are safe, let the house burn, I care not,' muttered Harold. He seemed strangely jealous even of her thoughts her tears. "'Be content,' he said. "'You see, much has been done.' He pointed to the lawn strewn with furniture. "'All is there, your picture, your mother's little chair. Everything I thought you cared for I have saved. And my life, too! Oh, it is so sweet to owe you all!' 
He quitted her for a moment to speak to some of the men whom he had brought with him from Harbury. Then he came back, and stood beside Olive on the lawn, she watching the doomed house, he only watching her. "'The night is cold. You shiver. I am glad I thought to bring this.' He took off his plaid and wrapped her in it, holding his arm round her the while. But she scarcely felt it then. Through the yawning, blazing windows she saw the fire within, lighting up in its laughing destruction the little parlour where her mother used to sit, twining round the white-curtained bed whereon her mother's last breath had been sighed away peacefully in her arms. She stood speechless, gazing upon this piteous household ruin, wherein were engulfed so many memories. But very soon there came the crash of the sinking roof, and then a cloud of dense smoke and flame arose, sweeping over where she and Harold stood, falling in showers of sparks around their feet. Instinctively Olive clung to Harold, hiding her blinded eyes upon his arm. She felt him press her to him, for an instant only, but with the strong true impulse, taught by one only feeling. "'You must not stay here,' he said. "'Come with me, home.' "'Home!' And she looked wistfully at the ruins of her own. "'Yes, to my home, my mother's. You know for the present it must indeed be yours. Come.' He gave her his arm to lean on. She tried to walk, but, quite overpowered, staggered, fainted, and fell. When she awoke she felt herself born like a child in Harold's arms. No power had she to move or speak. All was a dizzy dream. Through it she faintly heard him whisper as though to himself, "'I have saved her. I hold her fast. Little Olive! Little Olive!' When they reached the parsonage door he stood still a moment, passionately looking down upon her face. One minute he strained her closer to his heart, and then placed her in his mother's arms. "'She is safe! Oh, thank God!' cried Mrs. Gwynne. "'And you too, my dear son, my brave Harold!' And she turned to him as he stood, leaning breathless against the wall. He tried to speak, but in vain. There was one gasp, the blood poured in a torrent from his mouth, and he fell down at his mother's feet. End of chapter 46